with No Commons, and I'm your host, Janice Geary. I'm talking to experts across diverse fields about how they think the infamous idea of the tragedy of the commons can help tackle big problems of how we govern shared resources. I'm so excited to welcome Michelle Nyhouse. Michelle is a science journalist with a particular interest in the environment and conservation. She is a project editor at The Atlantic, a contributing editor at High Country News, an award-winning reporter, and a self-described lapsed biologist. Her writing has been published in National Geographic, The New York Times Magazine, and The New Yorker Online, to name a few. Her 2021 book, Beloved Beasts, is a, quote, vibrant history of the modern conservation movement told through the lives and ideas of the people who built it. And of course, recently published an article in Aeon called The Miracle of the Commons, The Tragedy of the Commons is a False and Dangerous Myth. So welcome, Michelle. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Is there anything that you wanted to add to that intro or did I miss anything? Sounds like you got it. (laughs) All right. So just to start off with, can you just give a brief overview of the article you wrote and how it relates to your recent book? I sure can. So I the the article is a is an adaptation of a chapter from from my book about the history of conservation and it, it really looks at Garrett Hardin's essay on the tragedy of the commons, how persistent the metaphor of the tragedy of the commons is within the conservation movement. And then how Eleanor Ostrom's ideas about commons governance have given rise to a uh, a bit of a reawakening, I think, within the conservation movement about the power of community-led conservation and how uh, how community-led conservation can fit into uh, hierarchies of governance um, worldwide. And, you know, you wrote a whole book on conservation. What was the inspiration, I guess, for publishing an article focusing on that one aspect of it? Yeah, I I should say I've written about conservation and climate change for a long time. And I was I was moved to write about the history of conservation because even conservationists, I find, or people interested in conservation don't know a whole lot about the history of the movement. They they might know famous names, but they don't know how the tradition of modern conservation has developed over time, how its ideas have changed, what its blind spots are. So I I hoped that trying to tell the story of, of modern conservation uh, would be useful. But within that, I really wanted to talk about the tragedy of the commons because just anecdotally, I hear it cited so often by professional conservationists. Um, and I rarely hear much, especially here in North America, I rarely hear much about Eleanor Ostrom's work on the potential of community governance. And I think the work that's being done in community-led conservation is some of the most exciting work happening in conservation today. And I, I really wanted to highlight the ideas behind that and also look at some case studies and as a person who might also describe themselves as a lapsed biologist, as my undergrads in microbiology, but I've since moved on to studying data sharing and how humans organize institutions for, I guess, collective work around data, I'm really curious about your your history of how you moved from biology into science and conservation journalism. But I'm wondering within that as well, if you can talk about that and how you first came across the idea of the tragedy of the commons. Yeah, I, um, I've i had a chance to reflect on that as I 
as I worked on on the book project, I I'm sure I read the tragedy of the commons when I was in college or high school. Um, I'm sure it was assigned. Uh, it routinely is, and I know I've I've of course known the phrase for a long time. I do not remember if it was presented critically or if it was presented as you know received wisdom. I. Do remember, though, hearing about Eleanor Ostrom's work when she won the Nobel Prize and being surprised <laughs> that, uh, oh, really, the, there are ways around the tragedy of the commons. And, and I feel, I mean, I feel a little embarrassed that I didn't encounter those ideas until that late date. But I also think it reflects the state of higher education in environmental studies and sustainability that I, as someone who was pretty immersed in these issues, both academically and professionally, didn't run into Eleanor Ostrom's work until then. It certainly wasn't for lack of curiosity on my part. So it seems that Ostrom's work has struggled to gain traction outside of spaces where people are really explicitly working on commons governance. I think so. And I think that reflects a larger oversight in conservation education, because historically, it's so focused on the natural sciences and on biology, and it neglects the social sciences. I mean, it neglects the fact that conservation is done by people. And and in order to be effective conservationists, we have to understand human behavior and how societies work and how societies vary. And I think conservationists neglect that in their own education and then, you know, consequentially in, in the movement itself. And, and that is starting to change. I think conservationists who do have a natural sciences background are beginning to understand that they need the expertise of social scientists, sciences too, but it, but it's late, (laughs) it's belated. And I think because of that, they are, because of that bias, that larger bias, they are less likely to encounter Eleanor Ostrom's work, um, and they are more likely to accept a, a pretty simplistic idea as like the tragedy of the commons and say, oh, yeah, that's that's just how humans work. We're greedy and, and wasteful, and, and that's kind of the end of the story. Now let's get back to thinking about uh, other species and how they behave and what they need. As someone who has looked at the history of conservation, I'm wondering if you've noticed a shift into more interdisciplinary work where the natural scientists are seeking out more social science expertise? I hope so. I think so. I wrote a lot about the rise of conservation biology in my book. The founding of that field was really a great advance. And at the time, you know, when it when it began in the 1980s, it was rather controversial that just the fact that ecologists might be thinking about politics, might be thinking about social sciences, might be trying to answer explicitly answer conservation questions in their work that was seen as somehow, you know, straying from the ideal of the objective scientist who was simply providing data and and then walking away from the more complex issues of of how those data are are used in the real world. And so the idea that natural science scientists can work together, can work across these you know, big disciplinary boundaries with social sciences, scientists, is, um, is yet another step that needs to be taken. So I would say conservation biology has, has come a long way, but it needs to evolve into something that goes well beyond biology and that truly is inclusive of other disciplines um, 
and recognizes how important they are in actually doing more than documenting just what species need and figuring out how to provide what species need. Have you come across the phrase socio-ecological systems? I have, but only through Ostrom's work. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, the, yeah, I guess that idea that these things are interrelated, um, it's funny because my my main linkage to conservation work is through Ostrom's applica- like the op- like application of Ostrom's theories to those problems because I'm interested in the theories because that's what I study and that's the only overlap I know. So in my mind, it's so pervasive. So it's really interesting to hear that actual boots on the ground of people doing this work, it's not as as pervasive. Well, and and I should say I am generalizing and and I would I think if you asked professional conservationists, they would say, "Oh, of course, I'm aware it's, you know, that these are human problems and we need to consider social science." But I think it it's not really felt at a gut level. It's at heart conservation as a movement is still about protecting other species from humans. And it, it's not about yet that's it's changing i hope but it's not yet about helping people live alongside other species in a working system and of course you know civilizations and societies that have done that for millennia like indigenous populations understand that very much so that it's it's a relationship between the two of course and i think the the conservation movement which you know and i i do differentiate that what i call the modern conservation movement from the kinds of conservation that humans have practiced for millennia but the modern conservation movement does have its roots in north america and europe and it's belatedly you know after 150 years realizing oh you know these systems that were disrupted by colonialism actually have so much to teach us and there's so much to be done in terms of you know how these systems can be revived and strengthened and supported and um, really incorporated into the global conservation movement for the benefit of everyone. We've kind of touched on this a little bit talking about how people overlook Ostrom's work, but more specifically, how pervasive do you think the assumption that meaningful conservation can only be achieved through total privatization or total government control? Pretty, I mean, I I, I haven't done a, a scientific survey, but I can just, I can speak anecdotally just from reporting on these issues for a long time and spending a lot of time with conservationists. I, I think the default assumption among, and, and I'll say, establishment conservationists, you know, people who, who work for the, the big green groups who, who have been, you know, raised in, in the traditions that I, that I wrote about in my book, the default assumption is, again, other species, other species habitats have to be protected from people. Uh, they, boundaries have to be drawn uh, because we as a species can't control our appetites in any functional way. And so I think, you know, it may not be stated explicitly that the only options are privatization or government control, but that's, I think that is the inevitable conclusion that comes from some of the core assumptions in the conservation movement today. How do you think that, or how have you found that impacts the success of those initiatives? Well, it really limits the the movement because uh, the assumption is often, oh, well, we can create a national park, we can create a reserve, or, you know, we can work through private owners to create some sort of land trust where habitat is protected. And, you know, those are, those are 
perfectly useful, feasible options. And certainly given what we as a species have done to habitat around the world, we, we need parks and reserves and we need, you know, large landscape conservation. But as I said earlier, there's this whole other world of, of strategies and tools that can be used to protect places that will never be a part of national parks, that will never be a part of, of reserves, and that can be used not only to protect species that live in those places over the long term, but can also be used to correct some of the injustices created by parks and reserves that were established under colonial regimes, for instance, and, and have disrupted people's ways of, of making a living on the landscape. Yeah. When I was reading your article, I, as a person who has spent time doing collaborative work in East Africa and who engages in community-driven research with indigenous peoples here in Canada, I consider myself to be, you know, in the know that I understand at some level some of these issues. And even I was, I found myself really surprised that I have always felt very squeamish about trophy hunting. And there was a line in your article as a quote from the executive director of a nature conservation or, uh, organization in Namibia. And he says, people don't like what they're doing to animals, but most of them don't want to live next to a lion that could harm their family. And I thought, of course, why? <laughs> I mean, this is why I don't do conservation, but it had never occurred to me that they, you, know, you could even select animals that are a danger to human populations as a revenue stream for trophy hunters. And it really blew me away because obviously people that are living in those environments have solutions to these problems. And I was just wondering if there's any stories that you came across when you were writing your book that also really surprised you or changed how you viewed conservation. Well, yeah, the my whole experience in Namibia was quite eye-opening. I mean, I had read about community-led conservation, um, thought it sounded like a great idea, knew there had been um, some very promising results, but seeing it in action was something else entirely. And I mean, the conversation you mentioned with John Casona, who is the, the head of a uh, an NGO that supports community conservancies in Namibia and Southern Africa was was quite again it, I was familiar with these issues I was familiar that with the fact that trophy hunting was a was a more complex issue than many people assumed but that conversation really brought it home to me that that as Eleanor Ostrom said repeatedly there are no panaceas and you know a global ban on trophy hunting sounds like a great idea i mean i feel the same way that many other people do when i see those photos of you know wealthy inevitably white people you know hoisting beautiful dead animals over their shoulders on social media i mean they're shocking but the fact is that while trophy hunting certainly is corrupt, certainly can be damaging um, in many cases there are other cases in which it can be used as a precision tool by people who suffered the effects of colonization and, and big game hunting to, in some ways, uh, repair that damage by, or not repair it, but to do a bit of reverse exploitation of colonial nostalgia and, and make a lot of money for conservation and also take out animals that for whatever reason have individual animals that that can no longer live alongside humans and that humans can no longer live alongside safely by the people who practice this kind of very controlled precise uh, commercial hunting it is seen as one tool in a toolbox that can promote 
people's ability to live alongside other species peaceably and for the long term. And of course, those are, I guess, controversial things to talk about on a global stage. Of course, yeah. And similarly, Garrett Hardin is not a topic that comes without controversy. And I experienced a little bit of the the, the way that people really latch on to wanting to have this idea of the tragedy of the commons be such an, an important concept within this space. And I'm just wondering, what kind of conversations and response have you found to your article? When I, Whenever I talk about the tragedy of the commons and Eleanor Ostrom's response to it, I am always surprised by people's loyalty to the idea of the inevitable inevitability of the tragedy of the commons. Um, you would think, I mean, for me, I found it to be liberating and, and almost exhilarating to realize, oh, look, there's this opportunity here. You know, there's this this narrow door that humanity can get through uh, in terms of finding ways to cooperate um, on behalf of human communities and, and other communities that we're not locked into this inevitable tragedy that Garrett, Garrett Hardin described. But I find that when I talk about that, that people are very, some people are very wedded to this idea of the tragedy of the commons. It's almost as if they're afraid that if we present alternatives to it, we might forget <laughs> just how bad things are in many places and, and just how large a threat humans can and do pose to other species. And um, I mean, I understand, especially for people who work on the front lines of conservation, I, I understand the impulse to say, no, 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 don't don't tell me, a, you know, don't tell me this Pollyanna story about possibilities. I want to keep everyone focused on the tragedies. I get that. But I also think keeping people focused on the tragedies is counterproductive because you wear out people's attention and being able to tell a story of possibility of real accomplishment on the ground, you know, on large scales, uh, like I saw in Namibia and are happening in many places around the world. I think that is inspiring to people and only opens the door further that opens that door away from the tragedies that Garrett Hardin outlined. Yeah, I agree. I think showing people the, the possibilities and what can happen is a really great way to to motivate and to get people engaged in a topic. And there was, I think it was in their book called Switch. I don't know if you've ever read anything by Chip and Dan Heath. And they wrote a book on uh, how to make things change when change is difficult. And one of the things they said is find the bright spots. You know, if you're looking at, I think it was an example in, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was like Vietnam where so many kids were dying of, I think, vitamin A deficiency. They said, okay, well, instead of finding the deficiencies, who isn't deficient? What are they doing mm -hmm. right? And how can we replicate that? And they gave all these phenomenal examples of identifying those bright spots and showing how that you can actually apply that. And I mean, that's what I remember from that book that I read so many years ago. So I think <laughs> I think that that is um, a really inspiring way to go about doing things as well. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And and as a journalist, I really, I relate to that because I think journalists have a somewhat similar mindset to conservationists in that we tend to be preoccupied with documenting the problems. Uh, we feel like there are so many of them <laughs> and we have a responsibility to shed light on what's happening. Um, and we forget, I think, or, or we 
think that we don't have time to tell stories about solutions. And, and we don't recognize that those stories can be just as interesting and just as complicated as stories about the stories about the problems. You know, there's a lot of drama in community-led conservation, for instance. You know, it's a it's a complicated thing. <laughs> and I I hope that uh, both conservationists and journalists will will start, you know, we can't look away from the problems, and I don't think anyone's suggesting that, but we'll start to look toward solutions for ideas about equally compelling stories that could be told. I guess Garrett Hardin is sort of one of the the negative aspects of, you know, the one section of your book that you mentioned that you pulled the article out of. Um, do you find the response to your book has mostly been in that positive lens then of people rejoicing in the, in the amazing stories of how communities have managed conservation? I think people are, uh, are surprised by that. <laughs> um, the people who who have read it, who are, you know, pretty familiar with conservation often are very new to the idea of community-led conservation. So yes, often they'll say that's, you know, I didn't know anything about that. And it's great that it's happening. I think that's um, an unfortunate blind spot in, in North America, because there's a lot of community-led conservation happening in North America, particularly in Canada, uh, with Indigenous-led management of uh, of parks and reserves. And I think those efforts have much to teach us and should be far better known than they are. I'm wondering, what are you hoping that might change in response to your book, in response to documenting all of these stories? Well, I would love for one of the things I hoped to show in my history of conservation was that first of all, that it is a movement that people built over time, um, that it's had many more successes than we realized. There are many species walking around today and flying around today that we wouldn't have were it not for the efforts of, of conservationists of past generations. Uh, but that it also, modern conservation, as many of us know it today, has and had some serious blind spots. Um, it was, it's deeply allied with uh, colonialism and racism. And, and those things are now being recognized not only as, as, you know, moral wrongs, as, as, you know, oversights that need to be corrected, but as things that have really hamstrung the effectiveness of the conservation movement, because they've left so many people out of the picture and so many places and strategies um, and, you know, most prominently the ways that people managed their home landscapes before there was such a thing as global conservation. Uh, so I hope that my book in, in showing the arc of both the successes and the blind spots of the modern conservation movement will bring more recognition of the power of these community-led conservation efforts to the attention of um, of conservationists who are working today and, and of just of people who are who are supportive of conservation in general, of which there are many, as we know. You know, this is the year that the Convention on Biological Diversity is being discussed. There's a lot of conversation about the 30 by 30 initiative, the effort to protect 30% of the planet's land and water by 2030. I think that is an exciting proposal that has a lot of momentum behind it. And it could have a huge positive impact for the planet if indigenous land rights are included in it. Because then, then it would be much more than, you know, just an effort to draw 
to use old strategies to draw boundaries around places, it would be an effort that actually promoted strategies for living alongside other species, things that we know have worked and have worked for centuries and can continue to work into the future. This is a really complex question, so I hope I don't muddy (laughs) it up too much, but I'm really interested in how modern techniques might be applied by groups that have been managing their community resources for millennia. So for instance, indigenous community conservation using genetics tools to help with their initiatives. And I know with the conversations coming up with the CBD and the Nagoya Protocol, digital sequence information and the sharing of that information is a really hot topic. And I'm just wondering if you came across any of these things while you were working on your book or in other areas about how indigenous communities or local communities can use genetic tools and what are some of their concerns around that and the sharing of that data? Well, I know there. this is not my area of expertise by any means, but um, I mean, I know the conversations have been ongoing for years. And I do find that there is a bit of a disconnect. There is, you know, some really important, interesting work, I think, being done on, especially on uh, advanced reproductive techniques to protect very endangered species, such as, you know, notably the northern white rhino. There's now an effort to to revive that species of which there are only two individuals left alive on the planet. And I think there is the people who are working in laboratories around the world to to save that species understand that their work would only take the species to the traditional starting line of conservation that, you know, then all the work of protecting habitat, of of preventing poaching, of making sure that those animals had enough of the resources they needed to survive, all that work would still remain. But I think the public in general, especially the public in wealthy countries, don't understand that. They think, oh, okay, that's what conservation is about. It happens in the lab. (laughs) And of course, people in indigenous communities and rural communities around the world are very aware of the work that it takes to protect habitat, especially for a large species like the rhino. And so I think the more attention that conservationists can bring to the fact that advanced genetic techniques and other advanced technologies need to work in concert with some of these traditional methods of protecting habitat and protecting species health, the better. So a lot of the initiatives that are out there to document all life on earth using next-gen sequencing or barcoding technologies or those things, I like what you said, really only get us to the baseline of conservation. They really only set a line that, or a, a baseline of measuring loss, but conservation itself really is a is a local activity that organizations work on. Yeah, and to a large extent, and and don't get me wrong, I I am not anti technology. I think that many of these initiatives, um, you know, many of the tools for for documenting species and many of the tools for developing reproductive techniques are very exciting and especially when we're talking about documenting species are of immediate utility to conservation and and these advanced reproductive techniques may well be an insurance policy that we need for many species in the future but i think that the the work of conservation has not changed that much despite our 
despite our technological advances. And we can't forget that that the work of conservation, you know, often gets done around a table, under a tree, <laughs> in conversations with other community members. And it, it, you know, it's a messy, complicated process. It takes a long time. It's often very localized. Um, you know, it can work as a, as at a large scale, but it often, you know, has to be very fine grained and, and very particular to the places that it covers. And I think we need to remember that, uh, we can't be distracted by the, you know, the flash and bang of, of new technology and think, oh, great. Now we have the tools. Everything's fine. We can just make more animals. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. And just before I wrap up, I'm wondering if there's anything else that you wanted to share about your book or the article or just thoughts in general about the tragedy of the commons. I, of course, would love people to check out my book, Beloved Beasts. And I, my, uh, <laughs> my hope with it is that it it is not a sad story about conservation, that it has hope in it. I, I am not a Pollyanna. I am not by any means unaware of the challenges that we face as a species. But I do feel that there are genuine opportunities, that we've learned a lot. The conservation movement has learned a lot, uh, that there's a lot of we as a species, as a human species, have a lot of knowledge about how to live alongside other species. And so... We sure need to find the will to put our knowledge into action, but we have that knowledge. So so I hope that it's a book that, that delivers some optimism at a dark time. And um, I would love for people who are the knowledgeable people who are listening to this podcast to uh, check it out and, and let me know what they think. For sure. And maybe this is a mean question because you <laughs> literally just published a book two months ago, but is there anything <laughs> else you're working on <laughs> that people might want to check out? Or are you taking a bit of a bit of a break. You've produced a lot recently. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been writing uh, stories related to the book. Uh, and one of them, I mean, one of them is the one we've been talking about, the, the story about the tragedy of the commons and Aeon. But I also recently published a, uh, a, a look at John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club and the Atlantic magazine, uh, looking at his fairly well known at this point history of, of racism and how the Sierra Club is grappling with that, but also at his sort of uh, larger related failure of imagination about landscapes and uh, landscapes as places that are deeply inhabited by people and how that has affected attitudes, mainstream attitudes within the conservation movement, attitudes like the ones we've been talking about that, that sort of see uh, parks and reserves as places that that are that are more or less blank slates that don't have much of a human history and just need a line to be drawn around them. I think that attitude is is fortunately changing, and the reckoning over John Muir is a good opportunity to look at the roots of that attitude and what we can learn from that. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I'm definitely going to look for that. And I'll link to your book and those articles in the, the show page as well. And I will say, I haven't got a chance to read much of your book yet, but I've skimmed through it and it's really enjoyable. And maybe maybe I'm immature. I'm not sure. I love the photos. <laughs> Having the, the pictures in there really helps me. And I have a weird little thing I do with books to know if I'm going to love them. And I open a random page and I read a few sentences. And I, if I feel engaged by a couple of random sentences, I say, okay, this is going to be a good book. And I had that feeling with yours when I did it that test. So I'm really looking forward to, to jumping into it and reading it in detail. 
Oh, good. I'm so glad I passed the test. <laughs> Some people call that the page six, page, what is it? Page 99 test, something like that. I didn't know it had a name. <laughs> it's just a random, mm-hmm. I used to travel a lot and there would just be random books lying around and you, you don't want to commit to a story unless you think it's going to be well written. So, but okay. So it's not something that I've invented. This is a process that people do. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a great test. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, anyway, I'm really looking forward to getting to your book and i Really enjoyed chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's just such an important idea. And it's great that you are digging into it. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's been fun for me as well. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more, you can find links to articles and other things we mentioned in the episode at nocommons.ca forward slash podcast. You can also find me and the show on Twitter at at nocommons. If you'd like to suggest a paper to feature, drop me a note on my website contact page. And of course, please consider subscribing to No Commons wherever you get your podcasts.